The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks your climate-focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, here with a public service announcement. Listeners, don't plant bamboo in your yard. If I had a time machine, I'd travel back and do all sorts of good things, but I'd also warn the previous owners of my house not to plant bamboo. If you only knew how many hours I have spent or paid people to spend trying to eradicate it, And don't suggest to give it to the zoo. Even pandas don't like the type that is trying to take over my yard. But on to today's guest. Joe Dominguez is the CEO of Constellation Energy, the nation's largest producer of carbon-free energy. As CEO, he oversees Constellation's clean energy fleet of nuclear, wind, solar, hydroelectric, and natural gas facilities in 19 states, and the nation's top competitive retail and commodities business, which provides electricity, natural gas, and other energy-related products and services to 2 million residential, public sector, and business customers nationwide, including more than three-fourths of the Fortune 100 list. Previously, Joe Dominguez served as CEO of ComEd, an Exelon company, and prior to joining ComEd, he served as Executive Vice President of Governmental and Regulatory Affairs and Public Policy for Exelon where he led the development and implementation of federal, state, and regional governmental, regulatory, and public policy strategies. As you can guess, listeners, we're going to talk about electricity. So buckle in. My conversation with Joe Dominguez is coming up next. Welcome back, listeners. As promised, I'm sitting in conversation today with Joe Dominguez, the CEO of Constellation Energy. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Chelsea. Hi, everyone. So um, I will just note that um, last month we had your former boss, John Rowe, on the show um, to talk about bipartisanship and a little bit about U.S. CAP and Exelon's role in the um climate space. And I know you were in that space and so much has happened in your company um, since that point. And I do want to get to that. But before we do, since you are really the first sitting CEO of a clean energy producer to be on the show, I thought you could give our listeners a little electricity 101. I don't think people really think about it, right? We turn on our lights, the lights come on, we plug in our phones, everything gets charged. Um, But just talk a little bit about how the electricity market works, and then we'll dig into some um, finer details. Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, first of all, Chelsea, we want it to appear just that seamless. So I'm glad we've maintained the illusion. But if I could let you uh, behind the curtain a bit, um, I think everybody knows we have central power plants, for the most part, making the electricity that runs America. We have some distributed generation, mostly in the form of solar uh, that is on people's rooftops. And, and, and while it has a significant concentration in certain parts of the U.S., overall, it's a really small slice of how we produce electricity. We still produce it the way we've been producing it for over 100 years, and that is that we have these central station power plants we move uh, the energy from those power plants through major 
transmission lines. And if you want an analogy, think of it as the interstate uh, highway system size transmission lines. And that's what we call the transmission system. And when it gets to lower voltages, all the way down to the voltages that come down the street and feed your homes, uh, that's what we call the local distribution network. And um, in some parts of the U.S., both parts, both the supply and the distribution are run by the same monopoly, a utility. But in a lot of parts of the U.S., we have competition where the generation part of the business is the power plants is owned by a lot of competitive suppliers, all of them, all of whom compete on a minute by minute basis for the lowest price to serve customers in a market that we've developed. So Constellation is one of those companies. We just split uh, apart from Exelon, which actually owns the wire side of that, which remains a, a monopoly in virtually every jurisdiction. So that's how it runs. Um, we're, we're managing this major transition as we deal with the climate crisis uh, to uh, change those central station power plants to more renewable energy plants. And the principal issue there is that those plants, unlike the fossil plants that they're replacing, uh, don't necessarily run when we want them to. They run when there's favorable wind or solar conditions. So a lot of the work that's going on in our field to kind of continue to maintain this illusion that it all works so seamlessly, as you suggested, is to make sure that we figure out how we match the generation of clean electricity with the consumption of our customers. So that's always on. Well, you you said two words together that I want to go back to lowest price, because I do think that there is a misconception that fossil fuels are our cheapest source of fuel, and they aren't always. I would say this, that for a lot of time in our history, if you want the cheapest energy, um, you would take a coal plant. You would run that coal plant. You'd strip off all of the environmental controls that are on the coal plant. And that's probably the cheapest form of energy. If we don't have to worry about air pollution or water pollution, then coal would probably still be as inexpensive as any form of energy. So um, it, it probably is true uh, that for the most part, fossil fuels remain less costly overall in terms of the entirety of the cost. That's honestly why we have government programs to support clean energy so that they could be cost competitive. But the big externality is the air pollution, right? We don't presently in our system, some countries do, some states are beginning to do this, but we don't presently charge the cost of the pollution externalities to the source. So we obviously don't have a price on carbon, although we've talked about that. Sounds like you talked to Mr. Rowe about that. Um, and we don't have a price on the localized pollutants, the SOx, the ozone, the NOx, the fine particulates, all of the metals that are coming out of these plants. So, you know, it, it's cheap compared to what, right? When, you, when all things are considered, I think we've acknowledged as a society that the cost of the electricity is one component part of it, but we need to look at all of these externalities as well. Well, that is for sure. And, um, you know, when you are talking about how um, some of these bigger utilities, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the utility side, you know, they're 
um, they have to, they can't just decide one day, right? They're going to burn coal and the next day they're going to burn natural gas. And the next day they're going to focus on wind generation. They have to make these investments that last for decades, right? right? So when you look at the price of the certain fuel sources today, how do you square that against what sort of investments you should make in the future, especially as you've noted, over time we've grown greener, right? So we have right. regulations on NOx and SOx. Someday maybe there will be a price on carbon. So how do you build that anticipation into your business plan? Well, I, I think as a general rule, everyone is striving to get as clean as we can. And so the construction of renewables, the preservation of existing clean resources, whether they're hydro or nuclear, those are all things that we're talking about very actively in this space. We do have to deal with this engineering problem, which is fundamentally a reliability problem of how you match the generation of electricity to the times people use it. So we're starting to think about things like storage as well. But we think there's going to be a continuing role for natural gas fire generation for at least a decade. And when we've thought about our own goals at the company, we've contemplated that. Uh, but but overall, I, I would say this, that even though we don't have a national price on carbon, all of the major utilities at this point are implying a price into the market, assuming that there is a cost to air pollution. And so we're using right. the social cost of carbon and other calculations to effectively simulate the value of eliminating air pollution for our communities. So as you are the largest, right, Constellation is the largest generator of clean energy in the country. That's right. We are so, the, we're the third largest overall generator. So we're big, you know, in, in any form of energy, but we're also the largest in clean energy. But it's, uh, it's fair. What, what I'm trying to make sure the viewers understand is when we say we're big in clean energy, you know, sometimes you're big in, in this really tiny thing. We're big <laughs> overall, and it just so you're happens. big and big, yeah. Yeah, we're big and you're big. big yeah, our composition, big of our fish in a big pond. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, does your role then being a big fish in a big pond like that set a market signal that other companies are trying to follow? Well, we're trying to do that, right? We, you know, I, I, I think leadership in this space is the stuff you talk about getting on this show, you know, uh, talking to policymakers, supporting policies. But at the end of the day, it's not necessarily the words that come out of your mouth, but uh, the direction your feet are moving in. And for us, we are in a position where we just, we didn't want to rest on our laurels, right? We didn't want to say, okay, we're the biggest clean energy company. We've done our share and we're done. We actually wanted to set goals for the company that we will in fact meet that were the most aggressive goals. So it's, it's kind of like uh, someone's already in the lead in the thing you want them to do, and yet they are doubling down and setting goals that are the most aggressive, which is usually not the way it works. Sometimes the closer mm -hmm. you get to the finish line, the less impressive your goals are, simply because mm -hmm. you've accomplished a lot. In our case, what that translates to is that by 2030, 95% of the energy we produce will not have an air pollution component. And by 2040, we will get to zero, 10 years ahead of uh, virtually everybody else in this space. 
And I would say something more, and we're, we're not relying on net offsets. So you're, you're not going to hear from this company, we're going to be zero, but in reality, what's going on is that we'll, you know, we'll have fossil pollution and we'll, you know, we'll be planting trees somewhere and, and saying there's an offset here. When I say zero, I mean, literally zero, we will not emit air pollution. That's the objective. That's so admirable. I have more recently had a little bit of a personal conflict about the idea of offsets. Just, you know, why am I going to do the right thing so that somebody else doesn't have to modernize what they're doing? And so I think those are amazing goals. Do you have other goals or is that sort of the thrust of it? The 95% by 2030, which isn't really that far from now and hundred percent by 2040. Yeah, it's funny that you should say that. So, you know, we've been talking about this middle of the century goal uh, to get to zero, right? And um, it's always seemed so far away for me, especially because yeah. <laughs> like John Rowe, I've been thinking and, and working in this space for 20 plus years. So it's just, it's shocking when you think 2030 is about, you know, is eight years away. It's shocking for all of us as we live our lives, right? How fast time right. flies. So that, to your point earlier, that's significant because the things we do in this space, just by definition, are big construction and permitting projects and take an awful lot of time to plan, to finance, and to actually get built and operating. So those are the, ma- those are the mainstays of our goals. We also uh, are, we haven't talked about this, but we're the largest supplier of energy to large industrial companies and large commercial companies. Many of the nation's Fortune 100 buy electricity from us. And if you're listening to this podcast in a state where you have options to buy electricity or gas from somebody other than your local utility, well, that's the business we're in. And we're the number one provider of electricity to commercial industrial customers, many of the Fortune 100 companies. So what they're looking for us to do is to provide them some options so that they could reach their sustainability goals. How could they power with renewables or clean resources more aggressively? What targets should they set? What are the pricing structures for those products? What are the technologies, whether it's energy efficiency, all the way to electrification of their vehicle fleet that they could deploy in terms of a strategy to reduce emissions? And we want to be partners to them in that space. Now continue on the Eco Rights Speaks podcast. Visit republicen.org online to sign up and stand with us. Interesting to think about how much farther along um, corporate America, especially in the electricity sector, is from where public policy is today. Right. So when you have Fortune 100 companies with ESGs and they're buying their power from you because that's part of meeting the goals that they've set and you're these great clean energy producers. And then you kind of marry that with public polling on climate change and majority of both parties want to see some action on climate change. Why is there such a lag then on Capitol Hill? That's a, that, that's a good question. I mean, the million I, dollar question. <laughs> yeah. And uh, look, I, and, and here's the conundrum, right? The companies are doing this because they're comprised of the same people that you just talked about in your polling. The leadership of these companies are committed to leaving for their kids a planet mm-hmm. that works and an environment that works and uh, reducing their own footprint. Their customers are telling that 
that, and, and obviously their investors and are, are telling them that. So in theory, that should be the same composition of people who form the electorate and are voting. And, you know, it wasn't so long ago uh, in 2008 where both the Democratic and Republican presidential platforms had action on climate change as a central thesis. In fact, they were supporting a price on carbon and, and, and that went down in flames really in Waxman Markey. And I think our space is probably no different than a lot of other issues in America right now. We're, we're, we're having to deal with a great many things, the inflationary pressures, we're, you know, the, whatever the issue du jour of the day is, whether it's significant issues around choice or gun control or, or war in the Ukraine, all these things that require focused attention from policymakers. And boy, it would be easier if the two sides were a little bit closer together and not every decision was effectively World War III. But that's, that's sadly what we're seeing. And um, it isn't everywhere. Uh, many of the states have taken action. It's not just big corporations. It's a lot of families that have acted with their feet, but also a lot of states that have set the most aggressive goals. There has been a polarization in terms of climate. And honestly, and probably this is one of, going to be one of these things, Chelsea, where inevitably what I say is, uh, be, because I think it's the truth actually, is going to annoy folks from either side. Sometimes <laughs> folks on the extreme left want to deal with climate in an incredibly aggressive way, focused only on the utilization of a couple different technologies. Wind and solar, that's it. They don't want to hear or see anything else. People on the right, I think, push back and they, they're concerned about the competitiveness of America and, and other issues around that. Um, I, 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 and, and actually the cost to American families. Mm -hmm. And I think the kind of middle ground in all of that is, let's think about what we're trying to, let's not get fixated on the technology. Let the technology stand on their own. Let's have the right price signals and objectives. I think what that will mean in our space is we'll look at a whole bunch of technologies, technologies we have today and some will invent in the future. And it will also allow for the kind of reliability, resiliency, and affordability we want. There's talk sometimes in Washington about how the Ukraine crisis maybe is pushing folks to the middle. And I'm uh, cautiously optimistic that's true. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, six months or seven months ahead of a major midterm election, uh, I don't think we're going to get this kind of rapid movement to bipartisanship that, it, frankly, is yeah. needed here. So, um, you know, I, I would like to think that Americans are a lot closer than the political parties would indicate yeah. on things like the need to deal with the climate crisis. We all want to leave the planet better than when we got here. For sure. And, um, you know, to the point on, on pricing carbon, and that's why we are such big fans of a carbon tax at republician.org because it sets the market signal, right? And then companies get there the way that they want to get there and it sparks right. innovation. And so it's really kind of the cleanest, most level playing field way to tackle the climate crisis, in our opinion. Um, nice talk right now about a carbon border adjustment. Not sure how that works when we're assessing that, but we don't have a national 
um, right. policy on carbon. Yeah. So that remains to be seen, but it's encouraging at least to see some prominent Republican leaders in the Senate, um, especially talking about a CBA. So I know that's uh, a little bit beyond what we said we were going to talk about today, but um, just something that is out there in the present moment. And and I do look a lot to the Ukrainian crisis and you know, my fear at first, because it did seem that we were having this knee-jerk reaction, um, more on the transportation side, right? We've all seen gas prices go up, um, drill, baby, drill, let's get, you know, supply more of our own energy. And and we should be energy independent. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but uh, I don't always think the answer is to kind of go backwards. And in the space that you work in, energy costs are probably words that you hear thrown about all the time, right? And, um, you know, I think of energy costs maybe more on on the vehicle side, but there's a cost to lighting your home. There's a cost for those Fortune 100 businesses to to keep the power on um, for their operations and employees. So, you know, how everything has a cost, energy has a cost. There's also a huge cost of inaction, right? And I, that is what really terrifies me, or that is the calculation that I think a lot of people aren't considering. So I'm just really grateful that companies like yours are out there on the front lines, really trying to set these goals that, um, like you said earlier, 2008, in 2008, when we were all working on climate change, on cap and trade bills, 2050, we're going to have, you know, be whatever percent reduced from 1990 levels by 2050. That seems so far in the future. 2030, 2040, 2050, these feel a little more attainable right now. Um, but there is, you know, I, I, I know that energy is kind of a, something that people tend to have a knee-jerk reaction about. That was a very long way of saying that. Well, it's, it's, I, I think you're exactly right, by the way. I think it's, it was kind of fascinating watching Ukraine. Uh, on, on the one hand, uh, you saw the, the extreme right, I think, say, Hey, the, the the real problem here is we didn't drill. And I got to tell you, as someone who uh, watches rig counts fairly intensely, um, the the reality is this: that we stopped drilling for natural gas and oil long before any executive order by the current administration. Those folks stopped drilling when oil prices went to negative thirty seven dollars because there was an enormous glut. And they've been slow to come back on. Regulatory pressures, investment pressures, all are part of that. But I think sometimes we overstate the importance of a president or a presidential view on international energy production. And and we're clearly seeing that. But uh, could I get my head around that one part of this strategy is to use natural gas to reduce some of the geopolitical influence that Russia has in Europe and to aid in the transition, of course. But there's also significant merit to the argument that the climate crisis didn't go on hold. We didn't push the pause button while we're dealing with Ukraine. We've, we've got to be able to deal with both of these crises simultaneously. And it may very well be the case that the other lesson here is that we didn't transition as rapidly. And in the case of nuclear energy, which I know we are, you know, uh, we, we are a big proponent of some of the poor decisions that were made in Europe to shut down nuclear plants have also caused the crisis that they face today. 
which is not just an energy crisis, but a national security crisis. More to the point that you can't step into this with a view that this is the problem we're going to solve and we're only going to use a couple of different levers. It's going to have to be an all of the above strategy, but we have to have a goal. And that's what the national government needs to do here for us to be effective. And, uh, and frankly, that's what I'm hoping will happen. And whether it's a price on carbon or other mechanisms uh, is, is less important to me than that we get going with a unified approach from a national level. Joe, I think that is a great spot to leave it on, um, hopeful, um, but also a little bit of a call to action in there. And um, I just thank you for everything that you're doing, this company that you're leading, and um, appreciate you being on the show to break things down for us. Well, thank you very much for the time, and it's great meeting you. Hi, I'm Peter Santoscano, host of Citizens Climate Radio. We highlight people's stories, we celebrate your successes, and together we share strategies for talking about climate change. We do all this by hearing from some pretty surprising climate advocates. We feature politicians, preachers, and poets. Citizens Climate Radio is designed to inform you about the many ways people are addressing the causes and impacts of climate change. Subscribe and listen to Citizens Climate Radio wherever you get your podcasts. Price, it's... Friday for you and me, not our listeners. Sorry, listeners. You have all just come back from a long weekend and Price and I are about to enter it. What a uh, what a great Memorial Day uh, weekend that it was. It was awesome. It was great uh, break and, and time to get away uh, as we now officially start the summertime, which here in the upstate of South Carolina has been ongoing for weeks because we've already had 90s several times. But it was a nice, uh, nice little quick step away uh, to get a little bit of a break as we barrel toward the end of this season before we begin a new season later in the summer. That's right. Um, you know, listeners, we are um, racing toward the end of season two. So we really just have um, three more guest episodes and then our new tradition a wrap-up episode at the end with our highlights so four episodes left um, to reach your ears and then price and i will be taking a little break Um, it's summer i don't really have any plans yet but our pool opens this weekend and i'm kind of just looking forward to recharging and meeting some friends at the pool and also jack will be back from college in um just over a week. So that's exciting too. Well, it was exciting having Joe Dominguez on. I know that's somebody that uh, Bob has known for a while, uh, but it was, it was great to have him on and, and hear that conversation. I know next week we're still kind of working things out, but it was awesome to have Joe. And, you know, as we always uh, let everybody know, if you've got uh, guest ideas, uh, somebody you're interested in, a topic you're interested in, please let Chelsea know we are here to serve you. Right, Chelsea? We sure are. And we are putting together our wish list for season five. Can you believe season five price? So, um, yeah, if you have some ideas, you know, we're always pursuing new threads, new contacts. So, um, you know, I, our listeners, they know what's up They're They're going to let me know when they want to hear from somebody. And in the meantime, we've been brainstorming ideas here too, and it's going to be a good one. It's going to 
like all our seasons, we don't really know how it's going to end up when you go in and then you get in it and you're like, this is amazing. It's just so fun to um, talk to different people. And, and Joe was really, really fantastic. I thought he has the kind of voice that I feel like I need to hear when <laughs> I'm feeling an emergency, right? Yeah. Like there was something just so assuring about him. I, I need a reassuring voice in my life more often than you think. And I just, it was sort of like talking to somebody who was just very comforting. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know if that sounds weird to you, but I really enjoyed my conversation. Yeah. I thought that as I was listening to the interview, I thought I was like, golly, Joe, it's just so measured, but just so calm and just so cool. And man, just makes everything seem, everything's all right, man. Let me uh, give a uh, shout out to some of our new members, uh, Sean D in Kansas. Zwin X in Pennsylvania, Christina S in Indiana, Joseph B in South Carolina, Tracy C in Ohio. Please, if you have not done so, we'd love for you to stand with us at republican.org forward slash join. It takes mere seconds. You get weekend review. You get all other a lot of other things from us. We don't spam your inbox. And, you know, at the same time, we'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast if you have not already done so as well. All you got to do is hit that subscribe button wherever it is you listen to your podcast. It is very easy uh, to get this delivered right to your device. Uh, laptop, whatever it is, wherever it is you listen to your podcast every single Tuesday when we have a new episode. That's right. And, um, you know, I, I, as, as our listeners know, I am a podcast junkie. And so I have my podcasts I listen to, and I always like that little alert that I get that, oh, you have a new episode waiting. And, and then, you know, I mostly listen when I'm gardening or I'm in the car or I'm cooking dinner and it just makes me want to do those things. And usually I never want to be in the car or cooking dinner. And garden is a mixed bag. If I'm doing fun things, yeah. But if I'm pulling bamboo, hell no. So, so exciting to always um, get that alert that your podcast is ready. And it means you'll never miss an episode. So that's exactly right. Well, let's go ahead and get out of here. Hope uh, everybody has a wonderful week ahead. We will be back again next week with another new episode. And until then, Chelsea, have a great week. You too, Price. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.